Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, 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 everybody. This is the Renaissance English History Podcast. Welcome. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being much more in touch with our own humanity. So this is a supplementary episode. It's a chat that I had with James Bolton on the six wives, or on the Tudor Queens, actually, because we started with Elizabeth of York. So not just the six wives. So the Tudor queen consorts, I should also get a little bit more specific, not the queen regnants, the consorts. <laughs> so anyway, we do these chats regularly over in the Tudor learning circle. So if you are not part of the Tudor learning circle, why not? You should join. It's free. TudorLearningCircle.com. It's a social network just for Tudor history lovers. All right. So I'm going to just jump right in and share the discussion that James and I had. James Bolton is fantastic. He had a show called the Queens of England podcast, which is how I discovered him. He also has another show now called The Other Half, where he goes in and does really deep dives on women in history. Some of them are real. Some of them are mythological. It's really cool. So you should check that out. All right. So let's get right into it. So we're recording. Okay, so James Bolton, you have the famous Queens of England podcast, and now your other podcast, The Other Half, focusing on women throughout history, like you, we were just saying, not particularly narrative in chronological order, and you dig really, really deep on some of these women. So um, you seem to want to tell these stories of these women. I, I'm curious, just what, how did that come about? How did you get interested in that? I was... <laughs> I was really radicalized at university. So I went to University of St. Andrews and in my final year of my undergrad, I did a course on Henry I, who was the third Norman King. So 1100 to 1135, I believe. And that was like a year long course. So you really went in depth. And I got really interested in his first wife, Matilda of Scotland for a few reasons. Uh, my lecturer was quite keen on that sort of thing. There was a really good book. Uh, and so I sort of got came in, interested in Queens in that because I thought it's lots of people it's one of those areas of historical study that there's still a lot to do it's still quite new it's only really been going on since about the 90s 
um, which in academic circles is quite recent. Um, so I got into that and I did my master's thesis on sort of queenship in Anglo-Norman England. And I sort of thought I might want to be an academic. And then I sort of decided I didn't want to do that because I found the world of academia to be like a shark tank. Yeah. Everyone, you know, it's it's very, it's quite vicious in many ways um, because you're not just criticized. If you disagree with someone, you're not just criticizing their opinion, you're sort of criticizing their life's work. Yeah. And so people get can get quite defensive. And so I decided that really wasn't for me. Um, so I went out and got a real job, but I was really sort of, um, I missed academia. I sort of missed, um, you know, going into a lecture or going into a big library and finding out something new and using that sort of critical historical part of my brain. I mean, I've known I've wanted to do a history degree since I was about eight. And so I was suddenly sort of, I, could, I was, wasn't ready to lose it. So I basically decided, why not do the Queens of England, do a podcast, I started listening to them. Um, like nearly all historical podcasts, Mike Duncan has been my sort of inspiration, but also like David Crowther and yourself as well, because you've been doing it for quite a long time. Uh, and so really my first few episodes were actually just essays I did. I shamelessly plagiarized my own work. Uh, I thought it would take, you know, about a year or so, about one episode, two episodes each. And then, about, I don't know, about three or four years later, I finished uh, I thought I'd only go up to Elizabeth of York, but then I went all the way up to Mary of Modena, who was the last Queen of England. But uh, yeah, so that's how it all started. I know lots of listeners were quite disappointed when I finished in 17, well, for 1707, but I think by then it was time for a bit of a change. So that's why I moved on and did something new, which is probably the worst business decision I've ever made in my life. But it's, it was good for me, at least in terms of keeping me interested, which is yeah. the most important thing, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. You have to you have to be able to dig in every week and be inspired every two weeks and, and do that research. So if you're not feeling it, then you have to move on for sure. Um, all right. So let's start with the queen. You just said you thought you might stop with her, Elizabeth of York, um, kind of the first Tudor queen. And I think she's often, it seems people kind of skip over her um, for a couple of reasons, just because the stories under Henry VIII were so much more dramatic, but also she was that kind of medieval queen who was gentle and didn't fight that much and all of that kind of stuff is this perception of her. Tell me what, tell me your opinions of Elizabeth of York. Well, I think I sort of, when I did the series, I bracketed her not as a Tudor queen in some ways. Um, obviously she was, but I sort of think of her much more in as a War of the Roses queen. I sort of um, think Henry VII, if you forget some dynastic thing, Henry VII very much more of a creature of the Wars of the Roses than he is of sort of the Tudor Reformation, Renaissance type thing. And I think she's very interesting. I, I was, again, I was revising this morning and I sort of looked, I remembered she's really just, she spent her entire life as a sort of prospective marriage item. You know, she was, at one point she, they thought she was going to be the Queen of France, then that didn't turn out right. Um, then, oh God, someone else, can't remember who that was. And then but, and then there's all this uncertainty, you know, although she grew up in a sort of a, a relatively calm period in the Wars of the Roses, it was sort of the, um, Edward IV, who was her father, when he was king, and it was, apart from a brief period where he got overthrown, um, 
it was a lot calmer. So she sort of grew up in a fairly nice environment. And then of course it all went to hell um, with Richard III. Um, was, she was sort of in prison, was semi-imprisoned and sent away. Her brother was, let's say murdered. I'm sorry for all you Richard III people out there, but he was murdered. Um, and, but then she became queen and, and she's sort of seen as this sort of unifying figure. And, and I think she really was. But again, she was this threat all her life. She was seen as both a unifier and a threat because she had a better claim to the throne than Henry did. I mean, everyone had a better claim to the throne than Henry did. Um, even Catherine of Aragon had a better claim to the throne than Henry did. Um, so I was, she sort of became queen, but she wasn't cr um, crowned for a long time. Uh, everything had to be put in place, but, and again, Henry VII's reign is sort of divided really between bit when he was happy and the bit when he was sad. And bit when he was happy was really cool. Edward Elizabeth of York was a really great at being a queen, really. She'd been brought up her whole life to do it, but she was an excellent queen. She gave the heir and the spare and three daughters, which I think is pretty much the ideal number. Um, she was really great around the court. She was really great with dealing with foreign guests. Um, she sort of patronized the arts. She was seen as being very religious. And these are all sort of the, the good things that you want a queen to do. You know, we're all very excited and happy about the, the queens that pushed the boundaries and became really powerful. But really, that's not what a queen was supposed to do. Um, but then she tragically died in childbirth, which was actually surprisingly unusual for the time. Um, and then we can see really her power and her influence in her absence, really, because then. Why uh, did you say that was surprisingly unusual? Because I think I, I want I want you to explain that because I think it might confuse some people when they hear that because you think like all these women died in childbirth. So tell me the. I She was only, I believe, the second certainly medieval queen of England to die in childbirth. Okay. I uh, Unfortunately, I can't remember if I had the, the other one. Um, no, I can't remember. But so obviously infant mortality was incredibly common. Um, but maternal mortality is, is relatively rare, at least in Queens. Now that might just be luck. I don't know how much this compared to um, uh, to other queens or other women in the time, I haven't really studied it more broadly, but I was sort of, you come to this impression thinking that women must die all the time in childbirth in the medieval period. And I'm sure for uh, different social classes, it's very different, but actually for queens, for whatever reason, it's yeah. relatively rare. Well, it's interesting because then you think about Henry VIII and two of his wives died in childbirth, not Catherine Parr, not with him, but Jane mm -hmm. Seymour and then Catherine Parr, yeah. yeah. It seems, uh, also, I mean, the Tudors seem to have really, well, at least Henry had really bad luck with giving, but I've, I've heard all sorts of reasons for it. Some people said it was the clothing that they, they had to wear, really constricting clothing was the fashion, even when they were pregnant, that was a reason. Um, I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I just, I wanted to touch on that. So sorry. So course, you yeah. talked about how she died in childbirth, which was unusual. Uh, and then the part of Henry's reign that was the sad part. Um, yeah, well, I mean, this, 
I grew up with an English education, so um, you study the Tudors all the time. So maybe uh, it's just me that sort of grew up this idea of Henry VII as this this miser, this mean person, this person who just wanted your tax money, who abused the nobles, who had a very boring court. That's really only the case after Elizabeth died. Mm -hmm. Um, And so whether Elizabeth kind of was a moderating figure on him um, or whether it was grief, it's sort of difficult to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Henry was always a very ruthless man. Um, he was, you know, it, not to say that he was a completely changed person, but I think you do see when you study Queens that courts where women, there was no woman at the head tended to devolve into sort of, sort of, I imagine like men partying all the time, you know, a lack of culture, a lack of arts and, and literature. It was just about drinking and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And with Henry, he was always a suspicious man. He's a paranoid man. And to be honest, it's you're not paranoid if everyone really is out to get you. And they were. And I think it was when Elizabeth died, it was a, really a case of his like his greater devils sort of dominating him. Mm. And really, really, he should have married again, but unfortunately, he did not. And so uh, it was not an especially nice time to be around England in that sort of period. And well, we'll get, we'll move on to Catherine of Aragon in a second, but she really suffered because of that as well. Yeah. Okay. So then let's, uh, let's chat about her. And um, like you said, she had a better claim to the throne um, and her relationship, what her la- relationship was like with Elizabeth of York, um, especially when she came back after Arthur had died. Um, maybe we can like start with that. And then. Mm. Well, again, Catherine of Aragon, if you look at her early life, when I say early life, really up until she married Henry was really the, as a dynastic pawn. Um, which is quite against really the rest of her life. She had a a wonderful mother role model in Isabella of Castile. No, Isabella of Castile, I sometimes get the two mixed up, Um, who was this queen regnant, incredibly um, powerful figure. Uh, She had a really, really good education, uh, almost sort of like education that you'd expect a a boy to have, uh, an heir to the throne in terms of, languages in terms of statecraft. Um, and then, but she had, you know, unfortunately, the really bad part is, you know, she was married into England for sort of dynastic reasons or means of isolating France, but then her mother died. And so she was, had these two men really in control of her life after that, her father, Ferdinand, and her father-in-law, Henry, were both incredibly miserly, incredibly duplicitous, particularly Ferdinand. It was the most duplicitous man I've ever come across. Just basically double-crossed every single person he ever dealt with. And so she entered this sort of limbo where everyone was always fighting about the dowry, everyone was always fighting about her role. Um, She married Arthur, but obviously Arthur died. Um, Spoiler alert. And, um, and then, yeah, she was stuck in this bit in the middle where no one really knew what to do with her because England didn't want to pay, give her dowry back. Um, and because she would have been due all the money they'd been given, but also she was due a lot of land as well. Didn't want to give back because obviously land is the principal currency. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, so Henry didn't want to give her up for that. Ferdinand didn't want to make a deal. Um, they still kind of needed England for foreign policy reasons. So again, she's in this limbo. She gets shoved off to the side. And really the best thing that, well, best thing that ever happened to her, one could argue, is Henry dying and uh, Henry VIII coming across who really actually did want to marry her. They'd grown up together. She, he knew her. They seemed to get on really well. And that was really the, the sort of the jumping off point. But really up to that point, her life had been just caught in limbo, which is, again, not that unusual for women at the time. They're always sort of caught between these powerful men, their father, their husband, and if they live outlive their husbands, their sons really are legally in control of their lives a lot of the time. Yeah. And is that that period when she was so in limbo in England, um, she started to become so religious? Do you think that's the kind of what kind of influence do you think that had on her for the rest of her life, that period that she spent with um, Henry VII? I'm not sure. I, 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 imagine, um, I, th I think, I mean, her religion was always there. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's very easy to doubt religious fervor. And there's that famous line, you know, the past is a foreign country. You know, different people live there. They did things differently. And I think it's so tempting to see you know, were they life from a, a, you know, a much more secular time? You know, did they really believe this? Is this all just, you know, a bit too convenient? But I think she was a very religious woman. I'm not sure if she was like significantly more religious than many other people. Um, well, I remember I, it was like around that time when she was doing all of the fasting and she actually had a letter from the Pope telling her she didn't have to fast so much because she was like sick a lot. And there's that story about that she actually, like the Pope said, you know, you don't have to so much. <laughs> <laughs> that's true I, I i'd forgotten that letter that was oh i do love i do love things like that i do love a bit of historical correspondence but i think for me what that period taught her most was that you know she had to be in control of her own destiny she had to fight very hard um for her own beliefs she had you know she knew that no one had her best interests in heart other than her mm -hmm. um and that you know, never give in, never surrender. And in some ways that, that it stood her well, but it was also the cause of her ultimate downfall, really. I think uh, she was described by someone in a letter, I think it was by someone right at the end who was begging her just to give way and to describe the most obstinate woman. And I think I called one of my, as I titled one of my episodes that, and she was that in a, in a good way, but also in a bad way. You know, she given in if she'd negotiated if she'd been a bit more Anne of Cleves then maybe you know she could have ended her life in you know relative comfort not as a queen but not freezing to death in an old house which is how it unfortunately ended for her terrible terrible um so yeah that obstinacy and that religious fervor we we had to talk about that once when we talked about her and arthur did they or didn't they and i remember we were chatting about how she swore up until the very end that they hadn't and the the level of credence you have to give that because it was like um her her soul her her everlast and, and what that would have meant to her um so yeah, that's in the obstinacy. Um, yeah, where was I going to go with that? Okay, well, that kind of that obstinacy kind of leads us in the the not having agency over her her life and her decisions. She had all of those miscarriages. It's one of those kind of funny what if if she had 
had a son that had lived, not the Duke of Henry, Duke of Cornwall, who lived for 42 days or something. Um, had, would there have been an Anne Boleyn? I don't think so. I think it's interesting. It's a thing that you see all the time is that a queen is never secure in place until she has a son. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, if you have a son, all things open up to you. Mm -hmm. There are very few secure queens who reigned for a long time that uh, never had a son. Um, obviously, Henry disposed of his queens like no one else before. But I think is a lot of evidence in the early life that they were very much in love, that they were very close partnership. She was a very good queen. Um, she defended his uh, defended England while he was off in France against the Scots. Um, she seems to have been quite good at you know having influence, but not being too influential, not being too pushy, which is kind of a good way for a queen to try and have that power. You don't want to overplay your hand. Um, mm -hmm. And really difficulties only really emerge when it starts to become more clear that she might not have a son, might not have a child. You know, Henry always had a roving eye. You know, he always had, he was weirdly monogamous with his mistresses. He tended to only have one at a time, but there was always one at a time. Um, and I think if he had been secure with Catherine, I think they, she would have died a queen. I don't know, I don't really see why not. Um, Anne Boleyn was a very talented woman at getting her own way, but getting rid of Catherine took an awful lot of effort. And mm -hmm. I don't think he would have done that if it hadn't been for this ultimate desire of having a son. It's something he what was obsessed you, by. What role do you think Bessie Blunt had with any of that once he knew that he could have a son? I think that's very true. So I'm sure everyone here knows that he had he had a son, Henry Fitzroy, with Bessie Blunt. I did a, a guest episode on your show yeah. on her. I think I, I possibly, uh, it's always good to have that um, sort of ultimate evidence. Yes, look at me, it's not my own fault. But I also think that Henry was an incredibly confident and arrogant man. I don't think he doubt. I'm not sure that he doubted for a second that he could have a son. I think it was helpful propaganda-wise for the proof to have him, you know, this fine specimen of a man or fine specimen of a baby uh, that, you know, to have him. But Henry, if you look at his conduct all the way through the great matter, all the way through trying to get the divorce, his... <laughs> His, one of the reasons why he failed is he was so confident and so arrogant that he, um, in many ways, played his hand quite badly. He always he he tried to do things the the right way, you know, going through the courts, going through all of this, and he always thought at every single point that he was just about to get his way, that everything was going to be fine, everyone would believe him, everyone would come round to his way of thinking. Of course, that didn't happen, and uh, that's sort of why I come to this view. I mean, I can, it's one of these things where obviously we can't know. So it's always just gonna be uh, a reading of character. And that's sort of how I've always read him. Mm -hmm. And then um, I love the way you're segueing here. So you talked about how Anne Boleyn always was, was used to getting her way. Um, that overlap of these strong personalities, these women with such strong personalities, because Catherine of Aragon did have a strong personality mm -hmm. in her way, um, different than Anne's. Uh, 
that clash. Tell me what that, what, tell me about that clash and how that, how Anne ultimately triumphed over that. I mean, you're, I think history sort of likes to put people in certain boxes. And because Anne Boleyn is seen as the use sort of the ultimate mistress, you know, she's seen as the ultimate schemer, you sort of, you attempted to put the other woman, Catherine, mm -hmm. in as a sort of a doormat, as the wronged woman, um, mm -hmm. as someone who possibly was slightly weaker than Anne, and that's just not the case at all. Um, Anne, as we all know, was very intelligent in the way that she uh, went about her business. Um, she was, you know, one of the most in intellectually capable um, Queens England had had to that point. She'd um, grown up in uh, the court of Margaret of Austria and then also in France. So she had a great education in terms of culture, in terms of languages. She um, was really more of a French woman than an English woman in many ways in terms of her style, the way she comported herself. Um, and she had seen when she was younger, her sister Mary uh, had a bit of a reputation, shall we say, in France and then again in England um, as being a bit wanton, a bit too overt in her flirtiness. She didn't really play the courtly love game where you sort of took things slowly. It was all very regimented and then staged. She was much more out there, shall we say. Um, which I'm, I'm not casting aspersions in terms of how a modern person might think that, but in the terms of the time, that's not the right way things were done. Uh, it's certainly if you had ambitions of, of sort of great status, because the Blends were very much a sort of um, an upstart kind of family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Henry had to give Anne Boleyn a title, um, the Marchioness of Pembroke, just to sort of raise her up to being sort of of the right rank to marry. Um, and so the clash really was this of two women who were very uh, firm in their own conviction, firm in their own beliefs, and driven in terms of what their ultimate goal was. Mm -hmm. um, and won uh, mm -hmm. in this, well, she didn't win in, in Vegicomba, she did win in, in, in many ways. Uh, for really uh, from her own cleverness in the way that she played the game, you know, not sleeping with Henry famously, mm -hmm. um, sort of using the right word here and there to nudge him along the way. Um, but it was, bang on, it was about the sun. It was all about the sun. Mm -hmm. And um, she had this wonderful possibility about her, you know, she always had left the possibility. You know, she refrained from sleeping with him and, until a few months before it all, all finally went down. She cultivated allies around her. She made sure that she still remained this sort of my mysterious and exciting person to be around compared to the um, Catherine of Aragon, who by that time had sort of devolved much more into religious nature. Obviously she was quite a bit older. I mean, she was six years older than Henry and, and about at least 10 years um, older than Anne. Um, and so that's how she eventually triumphed. It wasn't a triumph of looks. I mean, everything that we've e I've ever read about 
Anne is that she was a fairly plain, plain in the sense of average looking woman. She didn't comport to the idealized notion of what a beautiful English woman was. Back then you had to be very pale, you had to be blonde. Uh, she was dark skinned and uh, sort of olive skin and dark hair, which obviously right now is very, very fashionable. That's basically all you ever see on a catwalk. Um, but back then it, it wasn't, she was, I think she had lots of moles, which was seen as very sort of devilish at the time. You had to be sort of perfect. And she, she wasn't, but she played the game very well. When did the six finger rumor start? Just, I, I think, so she, uh, from what I remember, she had um, a, like a, a vestigial fingernail or something. Yeah. Um, and I think it was something that was pointed out about her quite early on. Um, so it was it wasn't really a secret, um, but it was that it came back at the time. Obviously, when you're looking at things to throw at someone, um, it's very easy. If some if a woman has any kind of imperfection and you're trying to smear them, you never go too far wrong by shouting witchcraft. Yeah, sure. Of course, that's a good that's a good go to. Um, so there's you know, the perception always is that Anne was this great woman to have as a mistress, but once she became a wife, she didn't learn her place. And it that's like the narrative, general narrative of Anne. Um, and it what what Henry liked as a mistress, he didn't want as a wife. Um, what what do you think about that? Does that stack up in your opinion? Um, I what I think is it's interesting to look at what their relationship was built on. So you know, love matches famously are very rare in. Um, in all royal history, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure if you've been watching The Crown on Netflix, but there's a very, about halfway through, but there's a very interesting conversation that the Queen has with Prince Charles just before he married uh, Lady Diana. And she talks about the example of her grandmother who had absolutely nothing in common when he ma she married Mary of Turkey and Mary George V. Um, nothing in common with him, but they worked at it and sort of love appeared. Mm -hmm. So in some ways they're starting the relationship on the basis that love is kind of a nice optional extra. Anne and Henry's relationship was always based on passion. It, uh, I wouldn't even say lust, I think passion is a, a better way of saying it. Mm. So th uh, th it was always quite fiery, even when they were courting, they were having arguments. And so, you know, don't marry for lust, marry for love. And I don't think either of them loved each other in that way they were very passionate for each other they were both very interested in each other mm -hmm. um and i think that's really where it all went down wrong i think Anne, for her part she didn't change her behavior when she became a queen she was always on the attack um they they say um the problem with the, the i'm not going to go into the english politics or british politics but you can't be a can you know, if you have lots of campaigners around you rather than people who know how to govern mm -hmm. then you're always on the attack you're always you know counter-attacking any op op opposition um you're not trying to build bridges you're not trying to uh bring consensus and Anne wasn't very good at that yeah. um and i think because she'd spent her whole life building up to a point mm -hmm. she couldn't change gear and try and bring some sort of unity, bring some sort of consensus. Something that Elizabeth of York had been very good at. 
And, and, and it didn't help that her rival was still alive. For... Yeah, it didn't help either. But I think, again, if she'd had a son, it may have been different. Yeah. Um, if you look at how she fell, which is every time I think about it, I'm amazed at how quickly it all went down. You know, she went from top of the world in January 1536 to dead in May. It's, um, it all comes down and it's because she, she had enemies. She wasn't very good at dealing with those enemies. And it's because I think she did not know how to be a queen or mm -hmm. she, she hadn't really thought about it. She didn't have the example. She wasn't bred for it. You know, she was one of the most, more the more commoner queens England have had. You know, she was a bit more high status than Elizabeth Woodville, but other than her, she's probably the lowest born queen England had had since the conquest. Yeah, and that, yet Elizabeth Woodville was successful, but she had sons. She had lots and lots of babies. Oh, never, never underestimate a Woodville because <laughs> they have a billion children. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so then the unifying figure with um, Jane Seymour comes around, I suppose. And, you know, again, the kind of narrative of Jane Seymour is that she was this sort of wet mop that just sat there and didn't really have many thoughts about things. And then she died. But she was she was clever, wasn't she? And I will tell me, tell me what you think about that kind of narrative of her. Well, the thing with Jane Seymour is if you literally only look at her life when she was chasing Henry and look at what Anne Boleyn did. They did exactly the same thing. And she I was think, coached, right, by some of the people. Yes, exactly. So the Seymours were quite, uh, were a more um, established family than the Boleyns. Uh, she had been very much coached. Um, she wasn't the rising, she wasn't the great hope of the family. Great hope of the family was, was her brother Edward. Um, who eventually went on to become Lord Protector um, under her son. But again, I think Jane Seymour really did what Anne Boleyn should have done, really. She, you know, she became a lady-in-waiting, she caught the king's eye, she did the same, literally the same things, exchanged letters, wouldn't sleep with him. I don't think she had a lot, to be honest, to do with Anne Boleyn's fall. Um, I, I'm very much in the blame Cromwell camp on that one. Um, but she was certainly a reason why Henry, I think, was keen uh, to um, marry. I mean, I think they married almost instantly after Anne lost, um, uh, well, lost her title and then lost her head. Mm -hmm. But so, as I said, if, she was very much a, a schemer like any of the others. Um, she wasn't as sort of a powerful and intellectual figure as Anne. Um, few queens were, um, but she knew how to play the game. She had been brought up to be an English noblewoman. She was coached by her family in how the best way to ingratiate yourself in. But then when she came in, became queen, she became much more of a unifying figure. You know, she began the process of rehabilitating uh, Mary and Elizabeth. Um, which was sort of carried on by sort of subsequent wives. Um, she she tried to be a queen in the sort of the old sense. Um, you know, she did the whole supplication thing where she tried to beg for mercy on behalf of some people. Um, Henry wasn't having any of that. Uh, told her to uh, to know her place. 
You're talking about the pilgrimage of grace people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, that's a very, a very normal thing throughout history for queens to throw themselves on the floor and beg for mercy. It was a way for a king to appear merciful, but also powerful at the same time, because because of like the weakness of his wife that he's giving in. Um, This seems to be a bit more spontaneous and Henry wasn't a fan of it. You know, I've, um, there's this idea that Jane Seymour was the only woman uh, he truly loved. uh, And that's because she gave him a son. I think if she hadn't, uh, she could have ended up maybe, who knows, like an Anne of Cleves style um, sort of retirement or uh, Anne of Boleyn style beheading. I would imagine she would have played her cards a bit better than than uh, than Anne did. But I don't think she necessarily would have survived uh, long if she had not had Edward. Um, of course, we'll never know because famously she died shortly afterwards. Another childbirth death in quick succession from the from the last one yeah another thing for henry too to have lost his must have been so i know we're talking about queens but for henry to have lost his brother and then lost his mother and then like he just had a lot of a lot of i mean i know it's quite common but um just wonder how that affected him but anyway um moving on deal makers we talked about uh, if Jane would have played her cards better. Somebody who did play her cards well was uh, Anne of Cleves um, because she kind of saw the way the wind was blowing and didn't want to be like Catherine of Aragon. So talk to me about Anne's faults and how she managed to uh, to outlive everybody. Well, it's, again, with Anne of Cleves, it's very difficult to get past the propaganda as the ugly one. Yeah. Uh, you know, you sort of put them into a box. Um, She's another woman, again, like Anne, who was very much um, a victim. Well, again, I don't want to say a victim because she only became queen because of the machinations of Thomas Cromwell. Uh, and she fell, and she ended up falling hard because of, well, Thomas. she was both the reason for Thomas Cromwell's falling, but also she fell because Thomas Cromwell fell. Yeah. Um, she's, you know, she she was from a, a fairly low um, low ranked um, family, but one that was relatively important. Um, it was considered important to marry some uh, someone who wasn't uber Catholic because the other Catholics wouldn't marry Henry. And mm-hmm. at the time, I'm always at pain to say Henry VIII was no Protestant. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was Catholic without the Pope, certainly of a more reformist bent I think his faith was really, you know, he believed in God. He was a religious man, but at the same point, his actual firm belief in in, in the particulars of, of Christianic doctrine were really what benefited him at the time. But if you didn't want to marry a Catholic, you want to marry some reformist at that time, there were only a fairly small number of choices that you could have. And then if you take into account, for, you know, alliances and all that stuff, Anne of Cleves was one of the only options really out there. It's difficult to say, you know, the truth of whether, you know, he truly believed that, you know, she was too ugly for him. I think certainly he was, she was oversold by the people around. I think Cromwell had become somewhat overconfident in his own position, which is never a good place. Um, 
And, so and interesting in the Wolf Hall book, seeing, seeing his downfall, like after Anne's death, he becomes this person. He's like, don't mess with me. He's like, you know, even people who are really high up in court trying to do it. And he's like, no, it's just like, I'm Cromwell. Like, what are you going to do? And yeah. they, they worked it out then. What it happens, you know, you see it with, with advisors, even now of politicians, you know, uh, English, uh, British people out there will know who I mean by Dominic Cummings. Mm-hmm. You have these advisors who f- sort of forget that they're not the one in charge. Yeah. They think they can boss everyone around. They think, oh, the prime minister, the president, whoever is sort of follows my advice, you know, really I'm the power behind the throne. And they sort of forget to remember who, where, who they were, what got them there, and that only it is with the favour of the people around the leader, the king or whatever that has them there. And you can't always, you can never really stop protecting your own position. And so, yeah, I mean, Anne was was a victim of, of those sorts of court politics. It was not her fault at all what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she, by contrast to, to almost everyone else, played her cards extremely well. She accepted what was going to happen. She did not dig in. I mean, I think it helped, unlike Catherine of Aragon, she hadn't been married to Henry for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So she didn't really have cards to play. She didn't have the powerful foreign backing like she did with uh, Catherine had with Charles V, the emperor. So she could have just gone home back to Germany and probably, you know, lived out her life in a sort of court of one of her family. But, you know, she negotiated herself a a very, uh, very comfortable life. You know, if you've seen or heard the soundtrack of the, of the musical Six, you know, her song is, I am the queen of the castle, get down you dirty rascal. Mm-hmm. And so she managed almost to skip ahead in terms of how a powerful woman is. Usually a woman only becomes powerful after her husband dies mm-hmm. because she then has the status. She doesn't have to... Um, give over power over herself to another man. Um, mm. She often has a fairly nice position for herself and managed to skip away ahead. She got herself a very nice country pad. She got herself a very nice pension and she kept her head down. Mm. Uh, and that's how you survive in the Tudor court. If you're not tremendously ambitious, keep your head down, don't do anything too aggressive and you'll probably end up okay. Yeah, yeah. Um... And I think it's interesting just you talking about her her religion and things because she she was it's this interesting intersection of those two that I'm because this was right when Henry had published the Great Bible and said that everybody in England had to have a copy of this English Bible it was Cromwell's Bible and then there's also this idea that Anne wasn't actually that Protestant that she was still quite Catholic um, and just these two I just always have thought it was an interesting mixture at that point in his life to have these combined. I think I mean, the problem is the word Protestant doesn't really mean much in yeah. 1530. Uh, you know, this is very early in the Reformation. Um, and so, I mean, there's no shortage of heresies of, sort of reformist views in the Catholic Church. Some get accepted. So not St. Francis of Assisi at one point was considered a heretic um, yeah. by some people sort of Franciscan monks and Franciscan establishments became part of mainline Catholicism. You have the Lollards in the 15th century, they were put down, but Lollards were really a very Protestant-esque institution. But for Anne, 
I, I don't, I, you can't really label her as a person because Protestantism just wasn't an entrenched thing. It was still very much in its nascent stages. Um, so I, I, she was obviously very interested in reformist beliefs. She distributed Bibles and texts around. She shared them with Henry. So I find it difficult to believe that she wasn't a, she wasn't interested. She didn't believe in a different view of how the Catholic Church should be run. I don't think it was just um, self-interest because she seems to have had these views before really it was considered important to break with Rome. And, you know, the break mm -hmm. with Rome happened as a, as a last resort. If Henry had wanted to do that from the start, then he would have done it much earlier and saved himself a lot of trouble. And I'm talking about Anne of Cleves. Oh, oh. yeah, sorry. <laughs> But, but you, so you mentioned in terms of uh, Anne Boleyn. Um, Just like 1539 was when Henry was still in his, he waffled back and forth so much. Um, and he, he did the great Bible that year. But then there's also, I know Anne of Cleves' family, the Hanseatic League and all of those guys were much more Protestant. But the story is that like Anne herself was um, much more uh, traditional. And that's why her and Mary got along so well. And it's just interesting that she was brought into this marriage that maybe for this these Protestant reformist re reasons, then maybe she didn't even particularly believe in that much. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, okay, I, I'm going to my ultimate get out of get out joke. It's difficult to say. I don't think <laughs> she was. I don't think she was particularly interested in all that. She wasn't particularly fervorous in either direction, um, which I think again might be just a case of trying to keep her head down. Gotcha. Um, I think. You know, she came from a sort of Protestant dynasty, but that caused a whole lot of uh, wars and troubles. Uh, it was, it was, I can't remember, there was a league, it was the Hanseatic, I can't I could never yeah. remember all these things in my head. Yeah. Um, a lot of very long named wars going on at that point. Um, and so I think she was a very pragmatic person, I think in terms of her religious view. That doesn't mean that she wasn't a religious person. Mm -hmm. I think the belief in God was almost universal back then, but that didn't necessarily mean that you believed in the religious structures of the time. I think she was pragmatic. She wasn't dogmatic, unlike mm -hmm. other people, unlike some of these other wives, unlike the Catherines. Yeah. Well, okay, well then let's talk about another. You, I, you once said that you thought Catherine Howard was actually like your favorite of them because she's just fun. Like, yes. Tell me about. She's just so different with Catherine Howard. She gets labeled a lot of things um, in the historical record. And the main problem that we have with her is that we don't know when she was born. Mm -hmm. um, now this isn't an unusual problem. Um, we, it's even with some royal women, it's difficult to know the date because chroniclers just didn't bother to note it down. So you have to guess based off a series of things. Um, so with Catherine, there's two dates for Anne Boleyn's birth too. Yeah, But I think there's about a six or seven year gap, or something like that. Maybe it's at least five year variance in when people think that Catherine Howard was born, and this has a huge bearing on what you think of her, because mm -hmm. so she was born into a very um, ambitious family, the Howards. Uh, they were very much on one side of the argument in Henry's uh, reign. You know, there's a difficult courtier around in the Tudor period 
you bet your life a Howard's going to be involved somewhere. Um, and she was sort of brought up in this very strict regimented way uh, in this sort of boarding house, like the sort of girl's dorm. Uh, and then she had all these sort of relationships with various men. And if you read any book on Catherine Howard, you can usually tell what their view is by how old they think she is. Because you have some people who sort of label her as a, a wanton, a harlot, a, for want of a better word, a slut. Um, because they think she's quite a bit older. You know, she was maybe 16, 17, 15, when she started relationships with her music teacher, with other people. Um, you know, at the time, so 14, 15 was considered an okay time for women to be having sex relationships, to get married, to give birth. However, if you think of her birth date as being somewhat later, then you start seeing her having a relationship with her music teacher when she was 12. Mm -hmm. And so then you see the idea of Catherine Howard as a victim, as this person who was sort of abused as a child, um, you know, abused by her family, abused by the men in her life, um, who never really learned how to comport herself. Uh, for for reasons that I can't quite remember, I came down on the fact that she was probably a, a, in the sort of the, the later stage. I don't, from, from what I recall, again, I'll have to re-listen to myself speak for a bit. Um, I think she, I, I think the abuse narrative is a little bit of modern sensibilities coming into fruition. Mm -hmm. Certainly now, if you think of a, your music teacher coming on to you, having a sexual relationship with you when you're 15 years old, you would absolutely call that abuse, yeah. both in terms of being a minority, but also the kind of the position of power. But at the time, it wasn't that unusual. Um, you would generally be a little bit more <laughs> under the wraps about it. You wouldn't flaunt it about quite so much. But um, why I love Catherine Howard is you, all the, uh, these other women around, all these other queens, certainly all the Henry VIII's other wives, uh, sort of have these sort of um, quite big per personalities, but they, they're quite regimented, even Anne Boleyn to an extent, whereas Catherine Howard was just a party girl. <laughs> she was. <laughs> because she came to the Queen as a teenager. None of the other ones did. Um, actually, I can't remember quite how old Catherine of Aragon was. But, you know, Henry in general didn't go after young girls. He, he actually quite liked a more sort of mature woman who could have a conversation with. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't tend to chase teenagers. Um, and I think it came apart from his life. Maybe that was more attractive to him. Um, I mean, it's not uh, difficult to imagine why a bald, fat, you know, man might want to go after an 18, 17 year old, however old you think she is, that was sort of being pushed at him by, mm. by, by his court. Um, Catherine was again, very much like the Seymour's coached into this role. But and did, did she continue her relationship? Like what, what is the thinking about why she thought that she, this, she was going to get away with this? I don't know, but I think she just wasn't, I think, I think she wasn't very clever. And okay. by very clever, as in I don't think she had really imbibed the, the lessons that maybe had been taught to her. I don't think 
she, you know, her upbringing, she was sent to, I think it was her grandmother's care. Mm -hmm. She didn't have this quite the same quality of upbringing and how to be a queen that mm. Jane Seymour had, or certainly, I mean, I'm not sure if the Seymours planned for her to be queen, but they certainly planned for her to marry very well. Catherine had no one had her best interests at heart at all. Mm. Absolutely no one. No one had her back. Mm. Um, the, the Norfolks were trying to um, sort of continue their reestablishment back in society. You know, um, Catherine Howard was seen as being the vehicle to do that. Um, but her whole candidacy as a queen was based around, but based around her being fun and interesting. But unfortunately, she was too fun and interesting, and she had no one in her court, no advisor, no person telling her, "Okay, you know, you need to behave like a queen. You need to calm down." And it's again, it's difficult to know exactly if she did was sleeping around with quite so many people, but even the most ardent Catherine Howard apologist would say that she had relationships that would be considered inappropriate. She spent too much time with other men. And yeah. I, I, I don't think you can really legitimately argue that she did not continue having flirtatious, probably sexual relationships with other people. And she did not have the upbringing at court to know how things were done. She was brought up in a very different way. She was brought, you know, she, she was brought into court and caught Henry's eye pretty much immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, and then the, the successful one, Catherine Parr, um, well, successful until Tom Seymour got his hands on her. Um, so uh, why did Henry, it's interesting because Henry seems to go from like an Anne Boleyn to a Jane Seymour, who seems kind of quite the opposite. And then he had Catherine Howard and then he went to Catherine Parr. Um, what do you think about those two women next to each other? I mean, they're completely different, aren't they? Like, it's difficult to think of two more different people. You know, Catherine Parr was very much more of a kind of person that Henry tended to go after. You know, a slightly older woman, uh, in relation to him, I, I mean, um, sort of more his own age. Um, obviously, a very, woman who's very intelligent, a woman who was um, who knew, who was very confident in her own place. You know, she'd been widowed twice by that point. Um, she knew what she was about. Uh, when I, you know, when I was growing up, I remember I did a project on Henry VIII, and I was in about yeah. Eight. So for people who didn't come through an English education system, that's when I was about 10, 10, 11. And it was like a secret diary of Henry VIII and you do the whole thing. And sort of back then, Catherine Powell was very much seen as the nurse. You know, Henry wants a nurse to get him through the rest of his life. And that's a view that I think is only just really beginning to be dispelled in the sort of the popular imagination, I think, in sort of academic circles that was dispelled a long time ago. But in the sort of the you know, the greater knowledge, but if you ask a normal person who has a broad notion of history, you might still say, Catherine Parr, oh, he was the one that, like, helped him to his end, and that's really not who Catherine Parr was at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that he decided to marry at all, because he didn't need to. Um, it's not unusual for a king not to remarry. Um, when when a beloved wife died, that isn't really the case of Catherine Howard. Um, 
He probably knew he wasn't going to have any more children. Yeah, I mean, if he wanted more children, he wouldn't have married her because yeah. uh, you'd marry someone a bit younger, uh, someone you know and more. She had been married twice and not ever had children, so she didn't yeah. have. Good. So yeah. I think she, but I think I think she was again. I think it was. I think just a sense of someone that he got on with. I think he liked having. He seems to be a man that very much enjoyed the company of women which is not a normal thing. You know, you see him as this awful, this beast, this ogre, and, you know, it's not entirely incorrect. But he did have a respect for women. Um, he had a far greater respect for himself and uh, acting in his own self-interest, as one might expect. He was extremely ruthless with, with women, as he was with men. In some ways, it was very equal opportunities. He, yeah. you know, he executed his best friends as often as he executed his wives. Um, and I think that's really what sort of attracted Catherine Parr to him as someone stabilizing, someone, you know, nice. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's good to have a, a, a woman at court as well. It, ha it adds a certain flavor to the, to, to the way things were done. And Henry, obviously, by now was, was very, uh, very sick. Um, you know, in not quite a lot of pain all the time. And I think she was quite a soothing presence, at yeah. least sometimes. And she was very intelligent and managed to get herself out of uh, out of a scrape and mm. uh, by the skin of her teeth, really. Exactly. I mean, people always think of Anne Boleyn as being the really Protestant queen when really Catherine Parr was the real sort of theologian, the really sort of ardent Protestant in, in a way that really got her into a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. um, I think you see the depth of feeling that he had towards Catherine Parr, that when people went after her, sort of accusing her of being being a heretic, of, of being uh, acting against him, of, of not doing the right things, as they would say, he defended her, but also she helped herself. She, you know, she'd been around the block. She knew how things were done. She knew how to... Um, be around Henry, how to play, push his buttons in the way that got her right. She was very lucky as well. I think, you know, she um, she had, she got the information at the right time. She had friends in the right places that had got her out of trouble. Uh, it's very easy to imagine that I would be saying, you know, she was an interesting queen, but, you know, again, it was her religious father that got the better of her and saw her lose her head. It could very mm. easily have happened. Yeah. Um, but I think what saved her is because if you look at what did for his other wives, it was either lack of a child or it was their own behaviour with Anne of Cleves being somewhat of an anomaly. Um, whereas Catherine Park, you know, she wasn't there for being a, a childbearer. And she was, she knew what to do to get herself out of trouble. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, again, if I move back to the musical Six, I'm wondering, I think now this view of Catherine Parr is of this sort of um, sad woman who was denied the person she wanted to marry, um, to marry the king. And I think that is the case. I mean, Thomas Seymour is a thoroughly reprehensible man, but there is no doubt that Catherine Parr was in love with him, that she wanted to marry him. You know, she was on the brink of marrying him before uh, he, she married Henry and she married him not long after. Um, it's unfortunate that he was a bit of a bastard. Um, okay, so we have now gone through all of the queens and I want you to get, have a chance to talk about where people can find you and your podcast and stuff. But I do want to ask you a very controversial question and I want your opinion on it. 
um, Jane Grey. Should she be known as Jane the First? Um, probably. Okay. So I I do count. So um, in the sort of the world of of controversial medieval monarchs, you have Empress Matilda from the 12th century, which is my favorite. Um, my favorite century, sorry, 16th century people. Um, who, it is quite a fun century, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Particularly sort of history of sort of Britain and France has always been my sort of area and it's a really fun time. Um, so You've my got favorite Eleanor queen. of Aquitaine in there. Oh, she's my fave. She's my yeah. absolute fave. Um, so she was queen, lady of the English, whatever you want to call her, uh, for six months. And I would say that she was for six months, she was the person in charge. Then you have, but I think if you don't call Jane, Jane the first, then you can't really call Edward, Edward the fifth. Okay. <laughs> you know, That's... they, you know, they weren't, you, um, you know, you do count queens that, kings and queens that weren't crowned, plenty weren't. Mm -hmm. uh, Edward the eighth was never crowned. Edward the fifth was never crowned. Um, so I think that's somewhat, um, uncontroversial. I mean, it's difficult because you know she was queen for such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. I think if it had been for any longer with the same claim, if um, her faction had been a bit more prepared and was more able to defend her, mm -hmm. then I think it'd be a bit different. Then you'd end up with something more like the Wars of the Roses, like the anarchy, where you have sort of two competing claims. Mm -hmm. The get out of jail free cars, we don't number queens that have only had, we only had one of. So, okay. yeah, so it's Queen, it's Queen Victoria. You know, Mary, Mary's called Mary Queen of Scots, even though she should really be called Mary the First. Mm -hmm. um, now, there actually was a second Mary for complex reasons, because the later Marys count. Um, so if we do in the, well, we'll now be far distant future, have a second Jane, maybe then we can, <laughs> there'll be a longer argument, but I... I didn't cover her. I don't. I don't know. I didn't. Well, I sort of did because I covered Mary. Um, mm. So I think calling her Jane, Lady Jane Grey, is a sensible thing. But I do think she probably should be Jane the First. Okay. What's your What's your view? You can't just put me on the on the screen. Oh no, I can do that because I'm the interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I think like you said, it doesn't really matter right now. But yes, um, if if you're going to call Edward the Fifth, Edward the Fifth, then she needs to be Jane the First. So yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so tell me where, tell me about your other show, your other half show. Um, people might know you from the Queens of England podcast, but you actually have another show too. And tell me about that and where people can listen and all of that. Yeah, so I mean, as I said at the top, um, I stopped doing the Queens. My great excuse for doing the Queen, stopping the Queens of England in, well, 1707, but the last Queen lasted, lived a little longer than that, is that that's when they stopped being the Queens of England. They started being the King, queens of uh, Great Britain so that was my uh, and then future Queens of the United Kingdom so that was my great excuse but partly mm -hmm. it's because I'm I'm like an ancient and medieval historian at heart um, mm -hmm. and so I was keen to go back but I was also keen to cover a wider range because the problem with taking one topic and doing it to death like I did is that some of the Queens just aren't that interesting some of them this is not a lot of information on um, so you can pick and choose a bit. So I decided for the other half to take a broadly similar approach, take a theme and then do a, like a bi individual biographical studies, which is basically the style I do. 
So I started off with Rome, Roman empresses, starting with uh, Livia, who is the wife of Augustus, and went through the sort of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, which was the first dynasty of, gosh, dynasty and dynasty in the same sentence. Um, so listen to too many Americans. Um, <laughs> Uh, sort of that first sort of dynasty of, of emperors and, and empresses. Um, so did that for a bit. Then I sort of uh, went back and did sort of uh, more uh, sort of queens again, but uh, did the daughters and granddaughters of Queen Victoria. That took me a lot longer than I thought it was going to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one of the periods I'm also very interested in is the First World War. And I think it's very interesting to see how the, the children of Victoria married into pretty much every noble house. Um, so you have Germany, Spain, Russia, uh, Greece, all these places um, that had a, an English or a British uh, woman or, or, or a descendant of one. And so you end up, you know, in the First World War with the chil- you know, three children of, of Victoria were on the thrones of Germany, Russia and Britain. Or, mm-hmm. uh, I said I meant grandchildren if I didn't say so I found that very interesting so that took a while and now but that was a bit too modern so by the end I was like oh god there's so much evidence I don't like this I prefer digging around and like trying to read do a lot of source criticism on one thing amongst at once that's much more (laughs) my special place so um my new my current series which I'm in the middle of is um I've called it folk heroines and it's the idea of these women that become um, kind of sort of um, the surrounding sort of foundation myths of a nation whose sort of their stories are still held up as the myths of the golden age or their ideals or their personalities. Like Boudicca sort of thing? Pardon, sorry? Like Boudicca? Yes, so I started off with her. So some of these people are real, some of them are semi-real and some of them are purely legendary. Mm-hmm. So um, Boudicca almost certainly was a real person, but we know almost nothing about her. Um, but and I sort of used her as a case study of how the sort of series would go because these people become different things. These women have different personalities, different things run into their conduct depending on when you come from. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing happened with Anne Boleyn, same thing happened with all these people. Uh, you know, right now, you know, Anne Boleyn went through phases of being, you know, a mistress, a harlot, oversexed and then now you know in the age of feminism sort of re rethinking her same thing happened with Catherine Parr um and Boudicca happened the same you know you see her as being a sort of a uh, idea of like Britain fighting back against the greater empire until Britain became the greater empire and then somehow they managed to make her a hero of empire despite the fact that she spent she died fighting one mm-hmm. um and then again, it, it sort of changed now that she, she's less revered, but you know, there's a statue of her outside parliament, despite the fact that she tried to overthrow the state, yeah. which is a very interesting. Uh, so it's that sort of semi-real, then you have like full-blown no, which was, I did Mulan, uh, who's yeah. a very interesting person to cover, but she is almost definitely a legendary figure. But again, that idea of her, um, you know, she was uh, from ethnically, at least in the legend, from the north of China, but now she's seen as like a hero of sort of the, the Han, the sort of the dominant ethnic uh, nationality of China. She's sort of a hero then, despite the fact that she really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was actually part of a kingdom that was opposed to them. Um, then I've done a few more. Um, more in, I did, uh, went back into the Middle Ages, uh, and now I'm doing Joan of Arc, and actually, well, 
I'm about to, after pretty much after I hang up this, I'm going to be recording episode one of her. Oh. And she is, a, she is in many ways the prototypical folk heroine because she is the person against which everyone is compared. Like mm. I, was, I did uh, someone called Tamara of Georgia, um, who was their sort of legendary queens, and she's the Georgian Joan of Arc. Mm. Um, you have, I'm um, actually going to do one with uh, 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 Rani of Jansi, who's a, a figure from 19th century India. She's the Indian Joan of Arc. Everyone's the something Joan of Arc. And she's a person who there's an awful lot of evidence about. We know a lot more about her than almost any woman in medieval history because we have, mm. we have a very, we have a lot of court minutes and they're really fun to read mm. if a little bit of choose. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So I'm going to be doing this series, I think, for probably until the middle of next year. I'm back on the fortnightly schedule. Um, and so you can find it basically wherever you get your podcasts. You just look mm. up the other half podcasts in your app. I unfortunately chose a name that ha there are other other half podcasts, but it's the one that's blue and white with a circle. Yeah. And um, otherhalfpodcast.co.uk is the website if you just want to see it there. Awesome. And I would encourage you to do so because I'm incredibly vain and like my download numbers. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Yes, awesome. Well, James, you've been so generous with your time. I know we've gone over an hour here, so I appreciate you um, having this discussion with me. It was super fun. Um, it's always good to talk about Queens of England with you. Well, it's been a long time. I think we uh, did, um, I had a chat with you about Catherine of Aragon about three years ago now. And, yeah. uh, and did an episode for your show, I think a bit before even that. So mm -hmm. it's been a while, it's been too long. Let's not wait another three years. Let's. Yes, let's... exactly. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Hey, thank you so much. And I'll let you know when this all goes out on my different feeds, if you want to link or anything like that, so. Cool, thank you. All right, thank you so much. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye. So thank you, James Bolton, for stopping by the Tudor Learning Circle and having that chat with us. Remember, you can join the Tudor Learning Circle to be part of these chats live, tutorlearningcircle.com. And I will be back next week with a regular episode. I hope you're having a fantastic week and a fantastic Advent. All right, I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>